Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Please visit www.audiblepodcast.com castle for your free audiobook download. Podcastle, episode number 48, for April 14th, 2009. I'll gnaw your bones, the manticore said, by Cat Rambo. Welcome to Podcastle. I'm Ann Leckie. They say there are only two certain things in life, death and taxes. Death can happen anytime, but at least in the U.S., taxes are due April 15th. The first income tax was instituted by Emperor Wang Mang of China in the very beginning of the first century. He was the first and only emperor of the Jin dynasty, a brief hiccup in between two halves of the Han dynasty. He was very popular when he first became emperor, but that popularity didn't last long. He was killed in a rebellion 14 years after taking the throne. But the first graduated income tax was put in place in Britain by William Pitt the Younger in 1798. It was meant to help pay for the Napoleonic Wars. War is expensive, and Britain had already spent a bundle on the American Revolution. You've got to love anything that finances Horatio Hornblower and Jack Aubrey, right? Three cheers for William Pitt the Younger! Ha, funny, nobody's cheering. Actually, I didn't expect any cheering. I was on a tour bus once that rode past a statue of William Pitt the Younger, and the tour guide announced that he was the man who invented income tax and everyone booed. But the sad truth is, very little in life is free, and if governments want to do anything, they generally need money to do it with. Anyway, if you're in the U.S., I hope your taxes are done and mailed. If they're not done yet, I hope they give you very little trouble and are in the mailbox well before midnight on the 15th, and I wish all of you big refunds. Today's story is I'll Gnaw Your Bones, the Manticore said. It's by Kat Rambo. She's a graduate of Clarion West, and her stories have appeared in Asimov's Weird Tales and Strange Horizons. She's co-editor of Fantasy Magazine, and she has a collection coming out soon from Paper Golem Press called Eyes Like Smoke and Coal and Moonlight and Other Stories. I'll Gnaw Your Bones first appeared in Clark's World Magazine in July of 2007. It's read for us by Elizabeth Green Musselman, who hosts a monthly podcast on the history of science, medicine, and technology called The Missing Link, which you can find at missinglink.podcast.com. She's a history professor at Southwestern University, a small liberal arts college in the Austin, Texas area. She's written a book called Nervous Conditions, which is about scientists in the 19th century and their nervous disorders, proving once again that truth is at least as strange as fiction. I'll gnaw your bones, the manticore said, by Cat Rambo. Even Duga, the prestidigitator, who never pays much attention to anything outside his own hands, raised an eyebrow when I announced I'd be hooking the manticore up to my wagon. Isn't that dangerous? my husband Rick said. He steepled his fingers, regarding me. The more we have pulling, the faster we get there, I pointed out. And Buppus has been getting fat and lazy as a tabby cat. No one pays to see a fat manticore. More dangerous than any tabby cat, Rick said. I knew what he meant, but I kept a lightning rod at hand in the wagon seat in case of trouble. 
Bumpus knew I'd scorch his greasy whiskers if he crossed me. There is a tacit understanding between a beast trainer and her charges, whether it be great cats, cunning dragons, or apes and other man-like creatures. They know, and the trainer knows, that as long as certain lines aren't crossed, that if certain expectations are met, everything will be fine and no one will get hurt. That's not to say I didn't keep an eye on Buppus, watching for a twitch to his tail, the way one bulbous eye would go askew when anger was brewing. A beast's a beast, after all, and not responsible for what they do when circumstances push them too far. Beasts still, no matter how they speak, or smile, or woo. At any rate, Buppus felt obliged to maintain his reputation whenever another wagon or traveler was in earshot. "'Gnaw your bones,' he rumbled, rolling a vast, oversized eyeball back at me. The woman he was trying to impress shrieked and dropped her chickens, which vanished in a white flutter among the blackberry vines and ferns that began where the road's groundstone gave way to forest. A blue-headed jay screamed in alarm from a pine. "'Behave yourself,' I said. He rumbled again, but nothing coherent." just a low animal sound. We were coming up on Piperville, which sits on a trade hub. Steele figured we'd pitch there for a week, get a little silver sparkling in our coffers, eat well for a few nights. It had been a lean winter, and times were hard all over. Traveling up from Ponce's Spring, we'd found slim pickings, and audiences too worried about the dust storms to pay any attention to even our best. Laxmi the elephant, dancing in pink spangles to waltzing Genevieve. The pyramid of crocodiles that we froze and unfroze each performance via a lens and clockwork basilisk. The unicorn maiden. And, of course, my manticore. Rick was driving a wagon full of machinery, packed and protected from the dust with layers of waxed canvas. He pulled up near me, so we were riding in tandem for a bit. No one was coming the opposite way for now. We'd hit some road traffic coming out of Ponce's, but now it was only occasional, a twice-an-hour thing at most. "'You know what I'm looking forward to?' I called over to him. He considered. I watched him thinking in the sunlight, my broad-shouldered and beautiful husband, and just the look of him, his long scholar's nose and silky beard, made me smile. "'Beer,' he said finally." And clean sheets? Clean sheets, he drawled out the last words, smiling over at me. A bath, I said. A heartfelt groan, so deep it might have come from the bottom of his soul, came from him. Oh, a bath with towels, thick towels. I was equally enraptured by the thought, so much so that I didn't notice the wheel working loose. And Buppus, concerned with looking for people to impress, didn't warn me. With a sideways lurch, the wagon tilted and the wheel kept going, rolling down the roadway, neat as you please, until it passed Laxmi and she put out her trunk and snagged it. I put on my shoes and hopped down to examine the damage. Steele heard the commotion and came back from the front of the train, He rode Beulah, the big white horse that accompanies him in the ring each time. Sometimes we laugh about how attached he is to that horse, but never where he can hear us. 
The carts and caravans kept passing us. A few waved, and Rick waved back. The august clowns were practicing their routine, somersaulting into the dust behind their wagon, then running to catch up with it again. Dugo was practicing card tricks while his assistant drove, dividing her attention between the reins and watching him. Dugo was notoriously close-mouthed about his methods. I suspected watching might be her only way to learn. What do you need? Steele growled as he reached me. Looks like a linchpin fell out. Could have been a while back. Sparky will have a new one, I'm sure. His blue gaze slid skyward, sideways, anywhere to avoid meeting my eyes. Sparky's gone. It is an unfortunate fact that circuses are usually made of family and outsiders. Jossers, they call us. Steele treated family well but was unwilling to extend that courtesy outside the circle. I'd married in, and he was forced to acknowledge me, but Sparky had been a full outsider, and Steele had made his life a misery, maintaining our cranky and antiquated machines. The fortune teller, the tent lifter, and Steele's pride and joy, the spinning cups, packed now on the largest wagon and pulled my laxmi and three oxen. The position of circus smith had been vacant to family for a while now, ever since Big Joy fell in love with a fire-eater and left us for the whistling Pisky, a small one-ring outfit that worked the coast. So we'd lost Sparky because Steele had scrimped and shorted his wages, not to mention refusing to pay prentice fees when he wanted to take one on. More importantly, we'd lost his little traveling cart, full of tools and scrap and spare linchpins. So what am I going to do? I snapped. Buppus had sat down on the road and was eyeing the passing caravans, more out of curiosity than hunger or desire to menace. I'll gnaw your bones, he said, almost conversationally, but it frightened no one in earshot. He sighed and settled his head between his paws, a green snot dribble bubbling from one kitten-sized nostril. The unicorn girl pulled up her caravan. She'd been trying to repaint it the night before, and there were bleary splotches of green and lavender paint smearing its sides. "'What's going on?' she said loudly. "'Driving badly again, Tara?' The unicorn girl was one of those souls with no volume control. Sitting next to her in taverns or while driving was painful. She'd bray the same stories over and over again, and was tactless and unkind. I tried to avoid her when I could." but oh, she pulled them in. That long, narrow, angelic face, the pearly horn emerging from her forehead, and two lush lips, peach-ripe, set like emerging sins beneath the springs of her innocent, doe-like eyes. Even now she looked like an angel, but I knew she was just looking for gossip, something she might be able to use to buy favor or twist like a knife when necessary. Steele looked back and forth. Broken wagon, Lily, he said. You can move along. She dimpled, pursing her lips at him, but took up her reins. The two white mares pulling her wagon were daughters of the one he rode, twins with a bad case of the wobbles, but which should be good for years more if you ignored the faint, constant trembling of their front legs. Most people didn't notice it. She needs to learn to mind her tongue, I said. Rick needs to come in with us, Steele said, ignoring my comment. He's the smartest. He knows how to bargain. 
These little towns had their own customs and laws, and it's too easy to set a foot awry and land ourselves in trouble. Much as I hated to admit it, Steele was right. Rick is the smartest of the lot, and he knows trade law like the back of his hand. I'll find someone to leave with you, and Rick will ride back with the pin, soon as he can, Steele said. All right, I said. Then as he started to wheel Beulah around, Someone I won't mind, Steele. Got me? Got it, he said, and rode away. I don't like leaving you, Rick said guiltily. It was a year-old story, and its once upon a time had begun on our honeymoon night, with him riding out to help with the funeral of his grandfather, who'd been driven into a fatal apoplectic fit by news of his marriage to someone who'd never known circus life. Can't be helped, I said crisply. He sighed. Tara. Can't be helped. I flapped an arm at him. Go on, get along. Faster you are to town, faster you're back to me. He got out of his wagon long enough to kiss me and ruffle my hair. Not long, he said. I won't be long. We leave Preddy with you, Steele said, a quarter hour after I'd watched Rick's caravan recede into the distance. It had taken a while for the rest of the circus to pass me, wagon after wagon. Even for such a small outfit, we had a lot of wagons. Preddy was Rick's father, a small, stooped man, given to carelessness with his dress. He was a kindly man, I think, but difficult to get to know because his deafness distanced him. We pulled the wagon over to the side of the road, in a margin sward thick with yellow loosestrife and dandelions. A narrow deer path led through blackberry tangles, and further into the pines a stream coming through the thick pine needles and chuckling along the rocks. I tied Buppus to the wagon and brought out a sack of hams and loaves of bread before making several trips in to bring him buckets of water. Preddy settled himself on the grass and extracted a deck of greasy cards from the front pocket of his flannel shirt. While I worked, he laid out hand after hand, playing poker with himself, studying it. The day wore on. And on. I cleaned the wagon tack and repacked the bundles in it, mainly my training gear. Someone else would be tending my cage of beasts when they pitched camp, and truth be told, anyone could— but I still preferred to be the one who fed the crocodiles, for example, and watched for mouth rot, or the white lesions of signal pox virus, and cleaned their cage thoroughly enough to make sure no infection could creep in under their scales or into the tender areas around their vents. Buppus gorged himself and then slept, but roused enough to want to play. I threw the heavy leather ball, and each time his tail whipped out with frightening speed and batted it aside— Fat and lazy he may be, but Buppus has many years left in him. They go four or five decades, and I'd raised him from the shell ten years earlier, before I'd even bought the flimsy paper ticket that led me to meet Rick. I hadn't known what I had at first. A sailor swapped me the egg in return for me covering his bar tab, and who knows who got the best of that bargain. I was a beast trainer for the Duke, and mainly I worked with little animals— trained squirrels and ferrets and marmosets. They juggled and danced, shot tiny plaster pistols, and engaged in duels as exquisite as any courtier's. The egg was bigger than my doubled fists laid knuckle and palm to knuckle and palm. 
It was coarse to the touch, as though threads or hairy roots had been laid over the shell and grown into it, and it was a deep yellow, the same yellow that Bumpus's eyes would open into, honey depths around clover-petaled pupils. I kept it warm, near the hearth, but could not figure out what it might contain. Months later, it hatched. Lucky that I was there that day to feed the mewling, squalling hatchling chopped meat and warm milk. I wrapped the sting in padding and leather. Even then, it struck out with surprising speed and strength. A manticore is a vulnerable creature, lacking human hands to defend the softness of its face, and the sting compensates for that vulnerability. He talked a moon, perhaps a moon and a half later. I took him with me at first, when I was training the duke's creatures, but a marmoset decided to investigate, and I learned then that a manticore's bite is a death grip, particularly with a marmoset's delicate bones between its teeth. Some beast trainers dull their more intelligent beasts. It's an easy enough procedure if you can drug or spell them unconscious. The knife is thin, more like a flattened awl than a blade, and you insert it at the corner of the eye, going behind the eyeball itself. Once you've pushed it into the right depth, perforating the plate of the skull lying behind the eye, you swing back and forth, holding it between thumb and forefinger, two cutting arcs. It bruises the eye, leaves it black and tender in the socket for days afterward, but it heals in time. It doesn't kill their intelligence entirely, but they become simpler, more docile, easier to manage. They don't scheme or plot escape, and they're less likely to lash out. Done right, even a dragon can be made clement. And those beasts prone to over-talkativeness, dryads and mermaids for the most part, can be rendered speechless or close to it. I've never done that, though my father taught me the technique. I like my talking beasts, most of the time, and on occasion I've had conversation with Sphinx or Lamia that were as close to talking with a person as could be. After the Marmoset incident, I left Bupis at home, the establishment the Duke allowed me, a fine place with stable and mews, and even a heat room, which the Ducal coal stores kept supplied all winter long and into the chilly Tibetan springs. I kept him in a stall that had been reinforced, and there were other animals to keep him company. I'd gone to the circus to see their creatures. They had the crocodiles, which were nothing out of the ordinary, and the elephant, which was also unremarkable, since the Duchess kept two pygmy elephants in her menagerie, and an aging hippogriff, a splendid creature, even though its primaries had gone gray with age long ago. I was surprised to see his beak overgrown, as though no one had coped it in months. Look here, I said to the man, standing to watch the cages, and making sure no one poked a finger through and lost it. Your hippogriff is badly tended. See how he rubs his beak along the ground? How he feeks? Your tender is careless, sir. I was full of youth and indignation, but I softened when he perked up and said, Can you tend them? We lost our fellow. How much would you charge? No charge, I said. If you let me look over the hippogriff as thoroughly as I'd like to... I haven't ever had the chance to get my hands on a live one. Can you come back later when we close up? He looked apologetic. He was a pretty man, and his uniform made him even prettier. I can. It'd mean a late night, but there was nothing going on that next morning. I could sleep in and go to check the marmosets in the afternoon, or let the regular assistant do it even, if I was feeling lazy. 
So I came back late that night and pushed my way through the crowds, eddying out, like a duck swimming against the current. He was waiting for me near the cages. I'd brought my bag of tools, and so we went from cage to cage. He settled the hippogriff when it baited at the sight of me, flapping its wings and rearing upward. It was easily calmed, and he ran his fingers through the silky feathers around its eyes, rubbing softly over the scaly sear, until its eyes half-lidded and it chirped with pleasure, nuzzling its head along his side. I trimmed its beak and claws and checked it over before moving on to the other animals. It took me three hours, and even so, much of that was simply telling Rick what would need to be done later on. To stop giving the crocodile sardines, for example, before they got sick from the oiliness. I refused pay, and he insisted that he should buy me a cup of wine, at least. How inevitable was it that I would take this beautiful man home with me? In the morning, I showed my household to my lover. The dueling marmosets, the brace of piskies, the cockatrice kept by itself, lest it strike out in its bad temper. And Buppus sprawled out across the courtyard. Rick was enchanted. A manticore, he said. I've never seen a tamed one, or a wild one for that matter. They come from the deserts in the land to the south, you know. A year later, diffidently, while the caravan was spending a month in Tabat, he mentioned to me that the hippogriff had finally succumbed to old age, and the caravan would like to buy Bumpus. I refused to sell, but when I married him, the manticore came with me. When the sun touched down on the horizon and lingered there, like a marble being rolled back and forth beneath one's palm, we realized that there was some delay. If not tonight, though, they'd come tomorrow. Preddy and I discussed it all with shrugs and miming, agreeing to build a fire before the last of the sunlight vanished. The woods that run beside the road there are dark and dangerous, which is why travelers stick to the road. As night had approached, there were no more passers-by. Everyone had found shelter where they could. Preddy and I would spread bedrolls beside the fire and keep watch in turns, but I wasn't worried much. The smell of a manticore keeps off most predators. But as I picked through the limbs that lay like sutures across the ground's interwoven needles, a crackling through the dry leaves at the clearing's edge alerted me. Preddy was near the road, gathering more wood. As I watched, I saw a stealthy movement. First one, then more, as though the shadows themselves were crawling towards me. As they emerged, crawling out from the crevices beneath logs and the hollows of the trees, I saw a host of leprous, rotting rabbits, their fur blackened with drying blood, their eyes alight with foxfire. I did not know what malign force animated them, but it was clear it meant me no good. Out of sight but not earshot, Bumpus let out a simultaneous snore and long, sonorous fart. Under other circumstances, it would have been funny, but now it only echoed flat and helpless as the rabbits, crouched as low to the ground as though they were snakes, writhed through the dry grasses towards me, their eyes gleaming with moon-touched luminescence. The novelty of the sensation might have been what had me frozen. It was as though my belly were trying to crawl sideways, as though my bones had been stolen without my notice. They were nearly to me, crawling in a sinuous motion, as though their flesh were liquid. Preddy wouldn't hear me shout. Neither would the snoring Bumpus. I strained to scream nonetheless. It seemed unreasonable not to. 
and then behind me there was a noise. A woman was coming towards me along the deer path, dressed in the onion-skin-colored gown of a palmer, carrying an ancient throw light. It was made of bronze and aluminum capped one end, while the other bulged with a glass lens. She thumbed its side, and it shed its cold and mechanical light across the leprous rabbits, which recoiled as though a single mass. They smoldered under the unnatural light, withered away into ringlets of oily smoke. I saw your fire from the road, she said, letting the light play over the last of the rabbits. This area is curse-ridden, and I thought you might not know to look out. Light kills them, though. Thank you, I said shakily. Will you share our fire? Yes, she said, as though expecting the invitation. She was a small woman with a head of short crown-curled hair, slight but with enough weight to give her substance. No jewelry was evident, only the simplicity of her robe, and the worn leather pack on her back, which she tucked her light back into. That's a useful thing, I said. Where'd you get it? I found it, she said, before changing the subject. Are you unharmed? A bite from a cursed creature can fester. I shook my head. They didn't get close enough, I said. Good timing on your part. Back at the fire, I tried to convey to Preddy that there was danger in the woods. I don't know if it got through or not. We built the fire up and stacked the extra wood nearby, settling down to toast bread and cheese on sticks over the fire. Buppus whined for cheese, but it makes him ill, so I gave him chunks of almost burned toasted bread instead. It's good for his digestion. He looked reproachful, but crunched them down. The palmer, whose name turned out to be Lupe, and I talked, Preddy's gaze moving between us as though he were listening, although when I tried to include him in the conversation, he gave me a blank look. I learned she was traveling from Port Wasp to Piperville, a palmer, although she did not reveal the purpose of her pilgrimage. Well, that's a personal thing, and not everyone shares, so I didn't push the question. You are a beast trainer, she said, eyeing me. I am and my father before him, and his mother before him. A tradition in your family. Her eyes glittered in the firelight, malicious jet beads. Yes. Do you pass down lists of what are beasts and what are people? I sighed. One of those. Look, I said, we know which are beasts and which people. Beasts cannot overcome their natures and are not responsible for their actions. People can and are. There are four races of people. Human, the snake folk, the dead beneath Tabat, and angels. Although no one has seen the last in centuries. But although beasts are helpless before their natures, should one kill a person, they are killed in turn. Of course, I said. Any farmer knows that a dog that bites once will bite again. They cannot help it people can learn so they can be punished and learn from the experience. She snorted and spat something fat and wet into the fire. It's no use talking to you, she said. She turned to Preddy. And what about you, she said. He looked at her blankly. He's a little deaf, I said. Ah. She leaned forward and shouted into his ear, putting a hand on his arm to steady herself. He looked at her, surprised. Few of us talked to Preddy. Too difficult to stand there loudly repeating a phrase until it penetrated the muffling of his hearing. 
I stood up and went to see Buppus. He was lying on his back, sprawled out like a tomcat in hot weather. Spittle roped from his gaping mouth and his knobby, chitinous tail twitched in his sleep, its tip glistening with green ichor. I checked him over for ticks, parasites, thorns, and the like. He grumbled in his sleep, turning over when I thumped him, great flanks shivering as though bitten by invisible flies. Aw, your bones, he muttered. When I turned back to the fireside, I froze as deeply as I had with the rabbits. Off in the shadows, beneath a sheltering pair of cedars, Preddy and the pilgrim woman were huddled together in his bedroll, moving in rhythm. I was appalled on several levels. For one, you don't want to think about your husband's father like that. You know what I mean. Plus, this woman didn't seem very pleasant. And this was awfully sudden, so I felt as though I should make sure she didn't chew off his face or turn out to be some sort of shifter. But above it all, I was irritated at their lack of manners. Was I supposed to act as though they weren't there on the other side of the fire? I could understand why they hadn't gone further, worried about the rabbits. But still. Still. After they settled down, Preddy emerged and signaled he was ready to take his watch. He didn't look me in the face, nor was I sure what to say. I looked him over, and if he'd been enchanted in some way, I couldn't tell, nor was I sure what the signs of such enchantment might be. So I tried to sleep, but mainly lay awake, wondering what Rick would say when he found out. In the morning, Steele was there. "'Where's Rick?' I said, before any other business. "'There's been a little trouble,' Steele said. "'What trouble?' He flapped an irritated hand at me. "'Get your manticore ready while I fix the axle.' He gave Preddy and the pilgrim a glance. "'That's Lupe, a pilgrim,' I said. "'She saved my life last night.' He grunted and turned to the axle. I roused Buppus to get him into harness, grumbling under my breath. Preddy and Lupe walked on one side of the wagon, while Steele rode on the other. I drove. Lupe leaned on Preddy as they walked, and I noticed the slight hitch to her gait, as though one leg were shorter than the other. "'You can ride with me,' I said, wondering if she'd be able to keep up otherwise. She shook her head, smiling at Preddy. It was a gesture that warmed me to her, despite my fears." What happened was this, Steele said. Lily got two farmers all riled up and throwing insults at each other. They started swinging, and then we got fined for disturbing the peace. Fined? How much? He winced. That much? I said. We don't have any cash to spare. Rick keeps the books for the circus, and I knew just how thin the financial razor's edge we danced on was. Yes, Steele said. They let me out, but kept the others in there. I'm supposed to raise the money. How, I don't know. Meanwhile, they're all sitting in jail eating their heads off and adding each day's room and board to the total. We have no extra money, I said. I know. I do, Lupe said from somewhere behind us. I could help you. We both turned to look at her, but Steele said the obvious thing first. And what would you want in return? A friend's wagon went into a gorge two miles ahead. I need someone to go into it and bring out a box of tools that he needs. 
He'll come back later to retrieve the wagon itself, but he's gone ahead to Piperville. I stayed behind to see if I could get help in getting the wagon out, but had no luck. Now I just want to bring him his tools, but I am forbidden to go within walls during my journey. It was flimsy. It was suspicious. But Palmers are on pilgrimage, and sometimes they act according to their geese. Steele and I exchanged glances, saying the same thing. Not much choice here. Very well, he said. We trudged along in silence for the next mile, except for Lupe, who chattered away to Preddy. She had a trick of touching his arm to let him know she was speaking, to look at her, and he seemed happier than his usual self. I felt guilty. Had Preddy been waiting all this time for someone just to talk to? I knew Rick's mother had died birthing him. That would have been over a quarter of a century ago. I kept hearing her voice as we rode, high-pitched inconsequentialities, the rush of words that comes from someone who has wanted to speak for a long time. It was easy enough to see where the wagon had gone into the gorge. It was a bad place where the road narrowed. Lupe said her friend had been trying to make room for a larger wagon to pass. The blackberries were torn with its passage down the sloping rocky side. And when I climbed down through the brambles, since it was clear Steele had no intention of it, I saw a familiar sight. Sparky's little wagon, tilted askew. He was not in sight, but I found blood and tracks near the front. Only his tracks, though confused and scattered as though being pursued. How to play this hand? What was Lupe's game? I opened the back door of the wagon and peered inside. Sparky had collected scrap. Iron chains draped the walls, along with lengths of iron and lesser metals, soft copper tubing, a tarnished piece of silver netting, and in the center, his tools and their box. I opened it, trying to figure out why Lupe wanted them. Ordinary tools, screwdrivers, picks, hammers. His father had made them and carved the wooden handles himself, Sparky had told me once. Wooden handles. I looked down at the tools again, and then at the chain-draped walls. Finally, I understood. I imagined Sparky being driven from his wagon seat in a cloud of elf shot, wicked stings that burned, wicked stings that drove him in a mad rush to where he could be safely killed. Taking a length of chain from the wall and draping it around my neck, I took the box and clambered up the side of the gorge with its awkward weight below my arm. Lupe's fingers twitched with eagerness as she saw it. She and Preddy stood side by side while Steele watched the road, ready to lead Buppus on a little further if some wagon should need to pass. I went over to him and laid the box between Buppus's front paws. Touching the manticore's shoulder, I leaned to whisper in his ear. He looked at me, his eyes unreadable, while Steele glanced sideways, eyebrows forming a puzzled wrinkle. Give it to me, Lupe said. Her voice had an odd, droning quality to it. Not until we have the money, I said. She laughed harshly, and I knew deep in my bones I'd been right. I stepped aside, putting my hand on his shoulder. Steele looked between us, bewildered. It's Sparky's wagon, I said. Looks like he was driven away to be killed. You must be confused, she said. That wagon belongs to my friend. I don't know who this Sparky is. I continued, 
and then she found she couldn't go in his wagon because of the iron, and yet there they were, wooden-handled tools that she could use. You're some sort of fay, aren't you, Lupe? Her black eyes glittered with rage. She stared at me, searching for reply. Preddy looked between us, his face confused. I had no idea what he was making of the conversation, or if he'd actually caught any of it. Steele stepped forward, hand on his knife. Stay away, she spat. Her form quivered as she shrank in on herself, her skin wrinkling, folding, until she resembled nothing so much as an immense, papery wasp's nest, tiny, wicked fairies glittering around her in a swarm. A desiccated tuft of brown curls behatted her, and she rushed at me and the box in a cloud of fairies. Buppus's tail batted her out of the air, neat and quick, and I laid the chain across her throat. It immobilized her. The tiny fairies still darted in and out of her papery form, but they made no move to harm me. Cold iron is deadly to the fays, even beyond its hampering of their powers. I had my own tools in the wagon. Another traveling show paid well for Lupe, enough to get all of our members out of jail. She huddled in the iron cage, quenched and calmed, and the malicious spark had vanished from her eyes. I hoped the dulling had left her with some language. I had not performed the operation in a long time. Surprisingly, Preddy chose to go with her. All he said was, She's a good companion, but there was no reproach in the words. Rick did not entirely understand why his father was leaving, but he took it well enough. In the evening, I took Buppus down to the stream near our camp for a drink. The full moon rolled overhead like a tipsy yellow balloon. He paced beside me, slow, steady footfalls. And as he drank, I combed out his hair with a wooden-toothed comb, removing the road dust from it. When he had drunk his fill, I wiped his face for him. There in the moonlight, he took my wrist in his mouth, pinned between enormous molars as big as pill bottles. I froze, imagining the teeth crushing down, the bones splintering as he ground at them. Sweat soured my armpits, but I stood stock still. His lips released my wrist, and he nosed at my side, snuggling his head in under my arm. I let go of the breath I had been holding. Tears sprang to my eyes. He rumbled something interrogative, muffled against the skin of my hip. I wound my fingers through his lank, greasy hair. No, I said. He didn't hurt me. Good, he said. I stood for a long time, looking up at the moon. Its face was washed clean by clouds, and stars came out to play around it. After a while, Buppus began to snore. Whether you loved or hated today's story, we hope you'll keep checking out more audio fiction. Audible.com is the Internet's leading provider of spoken audio entertainment, providing digital versions of tens of thousands of audiobooks that you can download to your personal computer or MP3 player. Listen any when, anywhere. Audible has over 40,000 titles representing every genre, including 1,000 science and technology books and 1,100 science fiction and fantasy titles. Audible has been kind enough to offer a free audiobook to Podcastle listeners who sign up at audiblepodcast.com slash castle today. 
If I were to pick up something from Audible today, I'd grab Player Piano by Kurt Vonnegut. I'm ashamed to say I've never ventured into the realms of Kurt Vonnegut's work, and I need to make a foray. Again, that website is audiblepodcast.com castle. Sign up and get your free audiobook today. Episode number 42 was Emma Bull's De La Tierra, the story that opened Elf Month. Elf Month has been slightly controversial among commenters, with some asking just where the elves were in these stories. Some stories seem to be about fairies rather than elves. Steph observed in comments on another story that it is apparently the editorial position of Podcastle that elves equal fae and fae equals elves. In fact, that is essentially the editorial position of Podcastle. As MacArthurbug said in that same thread, as far as I can tell, in my humble opinion, the definitions are so varied that one could be exchanged for the other depending on where, when you're from. Just personally, I think it's worth comparing the Shi as they appear in a work like, say, The Cattle Raid of Froik, or really any medieval Irish text, to the most common current conception of elves. And for contrast, set the elves of, say, the elves and the shoemaker next to the image that comes to your mind when you think of fairies. But, de la tierra. A number of commenters had problems seeing the elves in the story, though a few didn't. George, for instance, said on the blog, Spot on! Elves done right! Some commenters read it as a story about modernism versus tradition, or about illegal immigration, and found it preachy. And several people found it confusing or hard to follow, or felt it was crammed into too small a space on the board. Void Munashi said, I ended up feeling kind of meh about this story. I liked the idea behind it all, but it felt too compressed, like it needed more room to be properly told. I love futuristic urban fantasy, Shadowrun, Metamore City, etc., but it felt like there was an attempt to show me both too much of this world and yet not enough. Visit us at forums.escapeartist.info and let us know what you think. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartist.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Simone Weil wrote, Whatever debases the intelligence degrades the entire human being. <laughs>